0: The recent issues with traditional banks are unfortunately nothing new. They're just being put more in the spotlight. Meanwhile, the growth of check cashing centers and in some locations payday lenders means that many Americans don't want to use traditional banks. Part of it is the increasing fees that you have to deal with. There are many other issues as well. And it's an issue that banks seemingly aren't as probably interested in as they really should be, even in the wake of the recession in which they were part to blame. Penn professor Lisa Servon looks at this issue in a book, new book she has authored called The Unbanking of America, How the New Middle Class Survives. And Lisa joins us here in the studio. Nice to meet you. Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you. How much of an impact really has there been on the banking industry, if, if you can quantify it to a degree, especially over the last seven years when you're thinking recession, impact, and now where we are right now as a country?
1: Uh well you know banks were subject to a lot of new regulation following following the the recession in yeah. 2009 uh the, the creation of the CFPB the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, the Dodd-frank yep. act uh, and you know interestingly some of that is having a surprising effect in that banks are feeling like they got slapped so much for engaging in subprime loans and yep. selling subprime credit cards that they're actually retreating even more from that market because they're they they're they're fearing um, that they'll that they'll Get slapped again, and um, that's creating a, a problem for lower income, moderate income people who need affordable bank accounts.
0: But it's an in industry right now that still, to this day, uh, the, the banks feel like they can get away. Even with the le- higher levels of regulation, they can get away with a lot of stuff. Wells Fargo being a you know a perfect example right now. So you know, even though the industry feels like they've gotten slapped. They don't seem to feel like there's any concern for penalties along the way.
1: No, that's right. I mean, we see multi million hundreds of millions of dollars leveraged levied in fines to Wells Fargo right. in the last years to Citibank for selling um, identity protection on on accounts that didn't exist. You name it. Um, all four of the biggest banks and a lot of the other ones are are continuing to engage in um consumer practices that are simply not good for people.
0: And unfortunately... And sometimes illegal. Well, yeah. And unfortunately, that's for these banks, a lot of times, it's just a drop in the bucket for them because of of their their massive size.
1: That's right. I liken it to, you know, FedEx... is part of FedEx's business model to account for the parking tickets they pay for double parking, right? Right, right. I think it's the same for banks. You know, it sounds like a lot of money to us, but it's a very small percentage of their operating budget.
0: So in, in this book, you actually... You you had a, a proverbial deep dive into the problems that you that the banking industry are seeing by actually going to work at some of these locations, the the payday lenders, the, the check cashing facilities, to get an idea of what the impact is on the consumer right now.
1: That's right. I mean, so what I was looking at, and this is going back maybe six years, was these reports coming out from the FDIC that were starting to count people in terms of whether they had a bank account or not. People were ca- classified and still are as – banked, unbanked, and underbanked. And just so people get a sense of it, 8% of Americans have no bank account at all, and another 20% are underbanked, which means they have a bank account, but we have no idea whether they use it. And they're also using alternative financial services like check cashers. Um, The implication, if you read what the policymakers and consumer advocates say, is that Something's wrong. That people are making the wrong decisions by making the choices that they do and not having a bank account. And I looked at those numbers and also the fact, as you mentioned, that the check cashing and payday lending industries have skyrocketed in terms yeah. of the size. And I said something's wrong with this picture. Right? People who live in neighborhoods and with who have low incomes in particular um, know where every penny goes. So why are they yeah. making this choice? And I felt like I really needed to get to go as close. As I could to the problem, to the question, in order to answer it.
0: Because with some of these facilities, and especially like the check cashing facilities, you're you're paying for the right to cash your check. Which, if you have a bank account, you normally aren't paying anything to actually put your your check in your banking account.
1: That's right. Uh, but one of the primary reasons that people do pay to get their own money is because they so that they can get it immediately. And if right. you don't have a lot of money in your bank account, time is money, right? I get that paycheck on a Friday. If I put it in my bank account, it's not going to clear until Wednesday. In the meantime, I need to pay bills. I need to buy food for my kids. Um, If I deposit that count and I write a check that um, goes through before my check clears, I'm going to get hit with an overdraft fee of more than $30 that's definitely more costly than using the check casher.
0: And and you allude to the fact that I guess uh, they need the cash almost immediately because it could be in some cases business people – where they have to pay the employees in cash because maybe they're undocumented workers, something like that. So there's a variety of different kind of components as to why people are having to go this route instead of just use traditional banking.
1: That's right. I mean, what I really wanted to do was to shine a light on the situations that people are in. And what I learned is that, A bank account doesn't work best for everyone, and given the situations that people are in, they're actually making pretty logical, rational decisions a lot of the time. This isn't necessarily to defend or advocate for alternative financial services providers, but rather to show that we lack good options, and those options, those safe, affordable services, are harder and harder to come by.
0: But again, are, are the banks, the big banks, are they even thinking along this line of being able to provide these other options for consumers so that they can grow their base that way instead of having people having to go to the to the check cashing facilities.
1: It's a great question. And I had the same one. And in order to figure that out, I had to go to Washington and talk to a lot of people Who were working in bank policy and um, talking to bankers about practices, and I realized that when deregulation starts happening in the 1980s, suddenly banks banks can get bigger. They can merge. They can merge with insurance companies and other kinds of financial services firms, and they can engage in they can create all kinds of different products than they used to. So once they start doing that, they're making less money. The the the. Income that they make off of accounts like yours and mine is a, a smaller part of their overall um, income stream, right. um, and they discover fee income at the same time. Right, yeah. So you know, banks are shifting from a model where they're making money from interest income, which became very uh, fluctuated and was undependable, to fee income, and that combination of moving farther away from the customer, making money in other ways, and then uh, really figuring out how to uh, get as much fee income as possible really created a model in which banks were working uh, in, not in the public interest so much, but really um, solely for profitability and often, as you mentioned, using deceptive practices to do it.
0: Lisa Servan is our guest, Penn professor and also author of the book called The Unbanking of America, How the New Middle Class Survives. Your comments are welcome if you'd like to join in. Maybe some experiences that you have seen. uh, If you go to your local bank, 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in, or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Your comments are welcome there. Uh, the other piece to this, which is interesting, I guess, is also the fact that just the shift in banking in general. I, I know for me personally, my bank is a national bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do all my banking online. And obviously having that connectivity that people have to be able to do that has changed kind of the nature of banking in general as well so that the local bank, which used to be kind of the bread and butter of the industry, hi, go in, say hi to the teller, you know her, you know, you you deposit your check that way, that business has almost evaporated at this point.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I actually opened the book with the story of going to the bank when I was a kid with my dad and, you know, getting a passbook and having it stamped. Right, that's it, right. It's like a relic now. You could put my passbook <laughs> in a museum, yes, right? yes, yes. Um, so that's certainly not the kind of banking my kids have experienced. We go to the ATM and there's a machine that spits out cash. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, and and for lots of us, myself included, being able to bank online in my pajamas has been incredibly convenient. Um, But I think there are also things that have been lost as banks have grown bigger and farther from their customers. Um, The relationships between the folks who work at the bank and the customer is one thing that suffered. And interestingly enough, when I worked at write check in the South Bronx and check center in Oakland, one of the things that people told me about and that I certainly noticed was that those late relationships were really important. Um, and people talked about how they felt like they were poorly served by banks, that yeah. uh, they didn't get good service when they had problems, the bank didn't work hard to solve them. So it's not necessary that you need that one-on-one face-to-face relationship, but yeah. even In the absence of that, those problems seem to have gotten worse.
0: But as you said in the book, there was also a a decent amount of people that you ran into that ended up being in a situation where they didn't have hardly any money at all once they cashed that check. That's right. Which obviously puts them in a whole different kind of kettle of fish, if you're going to say it that
1: way. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, what surprised me the most— perhaps, there are a lot of surprises in doing this research. But one of them was that it wasn't just these low-income people in the South Bronx who were suffering from that. And you know, the subtitle of the book is How the New Middle Class Survives. And what I found, particularly in payday lending, was that there were a lot of people who had jobs, owned their homes, had college degrees, and were still um, having a lot of trouble making it from paycheck to paycheck. Half of Americans now are living paycheck to paycheck, and half could not come up with $2,000 in the event of an emergency. So, um, and that's because we've seen this kind of triple whammy of declining wages, increased income volatility, and the you know virtual disappearance of the public and private safety nets. So, American workers, even if they have full time jobs, are in a much more tenuous position than they used to be.
0: 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. So, uh, uh, is the banking industry then? Are they aware of this issue that that is obviously going on with many of their customers? And are they willing to consider working with them to try and alleviate the problem to a degree?
1: Yeah. I mean, here's where it's not probably appropriate to talk about the whole banking industry as a block. Okay. Um, you know, 50% of Americans, uh, 50% of all of our deposits are in the four largest banks. Right. So we do have this incredible concentration in the hands of a few banks. The other 6,000 banks share the rest of our deposits. Yeah. Um, so that creates a situation where the big four have a lot of power. Yeah. Um, we do see some banks, I talk about KeyBank, which is a super regional bank in my book that is trying to figure out ways to serve all of the customers in the neighborhoods where it works. Right. Uh, one thing Key does is it has check cashing services in the lobbies of a lot of its banks. Um, they've also come up with a small loan. Uh, it's not exactly a payday loan, but um, you know banks have stopped giving those $500 loans that my, sure. I know my parents yeah. could go to Pulaski Savings and Loan and with practically just a handshake get a small loan, and you can't do that anymore. Yeah. So um, Key is using its own data from its customers, um, which gives it a lot more information than a payday lender would have to make a more affordable um, small loan for its consumers. So, you know, I think what banks like Key and there are lots of other good small community banks and credit unions show is that you can actually do this and make a profit. You're not going to maybe make the same profits, but they're not trying to simply maximize fees.
0: So then do they kind of hold, pun intended, the key to kind of the future of the banking industry? Because we've seen for especially the last decade or so. Uh, a lot of the community banks and the small regional banks get swallowed up by the Wells Fargo's mm-hmm. and, and the cities of the world. So the ones that are making these changes and, and really thinking about serving the customer, it seems like they could be very important to what we know as banking going forward. And maybe don't know this for a fact, but maybe we might see a shift back to the community bank, which was obviously, as you said, very important when you were growing up. Same for me.
1: Yeah. uh, I wish I was so optimistic. You know, I think there are models out there, but I don't think there's a lot of pressure on the big banks to adopt those models. And it's not just the big banks. Some of the small banks are out there trying to maximize fee income too. Um, so I think you know we need to be putting pressure on the banking industry to make the right choices. There has to be much more of a focus on corporate social responsibility. There has to be a good reason to do it. And as you mentioned, even with a lot of regulation, we still see Wells doing what it did. Yeah. Um, You know, at the end of the day, consumers also have to recognize that they can move their money.
0: But there's also the concern out there as we shift from one administration to the other that we may see more deregulation and and, and changes that obviously benefit the banks. So there's obviously that concern that, Not that we're going to go back to 2007, 2008, but we could potentially head that way if we're not careful.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very legitimate concern. Um, One of the best things, I think, to come out of that Dodd-Frank legislation was the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. And um, I think there's a real risk that it will be eviscerated by having its funding structure changed so that it doesn't get as much money um, or that it's – That the the way that it's governed moves from having a director to a board that would make it a very political, less effective organization. So I think those are real concerns. Um, You know, one thing we can do is make sure that Americans know that the CFPB exists, that it's been, that it's saved billions of dollars to millions of consumers. Um, That's the organization that's the watchdog for. Places like Wells Fargo, and also for the payday lenders and check cashers. So,
0: and that's and that's uh, something I wanted to talk about for a couple minutes. Since y- you went to a payday lender, those are organizations that have a bad rep to begin with, for sure, because of the fact. And and we talked about it on the show about the prominence of payday lenders in towns where the military. Are located, right? A- and the impact that it's having on some of those families, which is you know military families don't make a ton of money to begin with, right? And then and they're having to deal with this payday lenders as an entity, I, I think need to be addressed e- even further. Correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for maybe for listeners who don't know what payday loans are, I should give a quick definition. Sure. Yeah. Um, these are small loans, so usually in the range of five fifty to $300. Yep. They are uh, due in two to four weeks um, on the date of your next paycheck or right. government check, which is why they're called payday loans. And they carry pretty high fees. Um, where I worked, it cost $15 to take out a $100 loan. Um, yeah. If you calculate that as an APR, it usually comes out to somewhere between 300 and 600%. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, as a side awesome. note... You know, I want to just mention that an overdraft is also a small loan, right? Yeah, you are that's taking, true. you are yeah. borrowing money from the bank for a small amount of time until you can put that money back. And if yeah. you calculated the APR on an overdraft, it's about five thousand percent. Oh wow! So I think you need to look at, you know, compare the two in that way. Huh. Having said that. Um, the problem with payday loans, I think, is that many people are not able to pay back the loan at that two-week or four-week mark, yeah. um, meaning that they, they what they do is roll it over. They show up, they um, they pay off the loan, and they take out that $100 again, again immediately, paying another $15. Right. And so that's where the argument between consumer advocates and the payday lenders really um, gets hot, is that the, the product is not being used as it was designed to be used. Right. Um, So the CFPB is now um, about to implement rules that would make Lenders verify the uh, the ability to pay of yep. the people who are coming in, and yep. I actually think that that will level the playing field to some extent. Because in research I've done, the most important attribute of these loans to the borrowers is that they can get them immediately. Sure. You yeah. walk into the place that I worked, you fill out a one page application, we check and make sure you Show have a your bank ID. account,
0: yeah. and a yeah. job,
1: and you get your money. Yeah. Right. So now, if Check Center and everybody else has to actually wait. You know, it has to actually verify income and make sure that person has uh, the ability to pay, and it's not just about income. Um, that will create an opportunity for other organizations, like one I talk about in my book called Opportune, to make small loans at a much lower interest rate. Opportune does it for about thirty-six percent, give or take. Right. Still expensive in some people's eyes, but much lower than payday loans and compete with payday lenders. Then. So
0: there's to a degree, there's there's innovation even going on in this industry to be able to look at different options that, you know, they're not the perfect uh, solution, but they're better than, than probably some of the other alternatives that are out there.
1: That's right. I mean, I actually had payday lenders, some of them say to me, you know, I was surprised as anybody that that we could do this, that this was legal, making these kinds of loans. They're yeah. expensive loans. The problem is, I think, um, when we just focus on the lenders, again, we get away from the situations that people find themselves sure. in. Yeah. So, you know, I write about a teller that I worked with, actually, a woman who was making these loans every day. Um, so she knew, you know, there was no tricking her, right? She uh, was a single mom. Her Her car broke down. She had to face the decision of either getting her car fixed um, and taking out loans to do it yeah. or losing her job, right? So she takes out five payday loans ranging from 50 to $300. Mm. She knows when she takes them out that she won't be able to pay them back right away. Right. Um, she gets her car fixed. She keeps going to work. When those loans start hitting her bank account, she overdrafts, she then racks up hundreds of dollars in overdraft fees. Yeah. So that's an interesting relationship between the banks who are benefiting from payday sure. loans too, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's the that's one of the things I kind of want to illuminate and lift up here is Ariane, this woman is deciding whether to keep her job or take out a loan. People are are deciding whether to keep their father in a substandard assisted living facility or yeah. take out a loan to move them someplace better. So You know, I'm assuming you and I are in places where we haven't had to make those kinds of horrible choices.
0: Yeah, well, and you mentioned an organization like the CFPB is looking to try and address those. But, you know, these have been going on for such a long period of time that you've got millions of Americans that are probably in this vicious cycle that they've been in, you know, for the last couple of years. Whatever relief they may get through the government at this point it probably they they needed it five years ago.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, and I think that goes to the, what, the problem we, we talked about a little bit earlier, which is this declining um, condition for American workers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even if you wipe all of the payday lenders off the map and close them down, you still have this need. You still sure. have the need yeah. for um, small-dollar credit. You still have the fact that— all of these people can't handle an income shock yeah. or, uh, or uh, uh, an emergency need because there's no buffer.
0: And, and some of these are obviously issues that, that need to be discussed on the grander scale right. of the economy in general and what we can do to, you know, improve the lot of people that are in the lower incomes or, as you said, even the middle class, which the middle class is a, is another total kind of topic to bring up because of the fact that we've discussed the deterioration of the middle class. The middle class, what we knew 20 years ago, is no longer theirs, realistically.
1: Right. I I spent, you know, one interesting group that illuminates that, I think, is millennials. I spent a lot of time talking to millennials and interviewing them when I wrote the book and asking them about, you know, thinking about what my parents were able to do. My parents were both teachers. We didn't make a lot of—they didn't make a lot of money, but it was a stable income coming in, and we did fine. And my parents could buy a house. They they had good pensions. They could save— you know, at least to pay for some of my sisters in my college education. And when I talked to young people who are just coming out of college or graduate school, they didn't feel like those those goals were realistic for them anymore. Yeah. Um, I talked to a woman who had been in the Army for four years, owned a home, um, had it foreclosed on, kept making the mortgage payments for a long time because she put renters in and slept on someone's couch. Yeah. Then she loses her home. She still has a 780 credit score. But then she lets that wow. she lets go. You know, she said that was the thing I protected above all else
0: <laughs> was the credit score
1: was the credit score. Um, she loses that. And now she says, you know, my parents had the American dream, but good for them. It's not going to be for me. So, yeah, I think um, the game has changed. And yet we're still kind of holding up that ideal for people that, you know, if you work hard and go to school, you can do this. Well, it's not realistic.
0: That, that ideal, I think, ends up sticking around because of the fact that the baby boomer generation is still a very important part to our community in general. I think if once we go you know, the baby boomers are, are no longer on the planet anymore. The millennials, if we're talking about a total different view of what that American dream is. Millennials will become that and they'll pass this new version on to their, on to their children, which it ends up not being the type of thing that you want to see.
1: That's right. Well, and the millennials are – the millennial generation is larger than the baby boom ge- sure, generation, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. they are really yeah. – and they're, uh, you know, the four largest banks – all make it to millennials' top 10 list of least, uh, most hated brands, right? (laughs) 70% of millennials would rather go to the dentist than talk to a a banker. So they're also changing... Uh, the financial industry with their dollars and their and their practices.
0: The book is uh, The Unbanking of America. Uh, Penn professor Lisa Servon uh, has written this book. It is available uh, in bookstores and online uh, right now. Thank you very much for coming in. Greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's Thank been a pleasure. It. Thank
0: you. Again, the book is The Unbanking of America, How the New Middle Class Survives, and you can pick it up, as we said, in bookstores and online right now. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge of Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.